Hello and welcome to New Things Under the Sun. I'm Matt Clancy. This week's podcast, Can Taste Beat Peer Review? So, as we know, scientific peer review is widely used as a way to distribute scarce resources in academic science, whether those are scarce research dollars or scarce journal pages. And peer review is, on average, actually predictive of the eventual scientific impact of research proposals and journal articles, though not super strongly. And if you want to learn more about that, there's a link in the newsletter to a previous podcast and uh, newsletter I've written about that topic. You know, in some sense, it's not actually that surprising that peer review is predictive of eventual scientific impact, because most of our measures of scientific impact are, to some degree, about How does the scientific community perceive the merits of your work? Do they want to let it into a journal? Do they want to cite it? It's not surprising that polling a few people from a given community is, you know, mildly predictive of that community's views. At the same time, peer review has several shortcomings. You know, multiple people reading and commenting on the same document is always going to cost more than having just one person do it. Current peer review practices provide little incentives to do, you know, a really great job at peer review. And third, as I've discussed in other newsletters and podcasts, peer review could lead to biases against riskier proposals. So one alternative to all this is to empower individuals to make decisions about how to allocate scientific resources. And indeed, we actually do do this with journal editors and grant makers, although generally in consultation with peer review. And so what I want to ask this week is under what conditions might we expect individuals empowered to exercise sort of independent judgment and discretion to outperform just pure peer review? So to begin, while peer review does seem to add value, it doesn't seem to add like a ton of value. For example, at the NIH, top scoring proposals aren't that much better than average scoring proposals that still get funded in terms of their eventual probability of sort of leading to a hit, uh, you know, scientific discovery. And again, there's a link to some of that literature in the newsletter. Maybe individuals selected for their scientific taste can do better in the same way, you know, some people seem to just have an unusual knack for, say, forecasting. Second, peer reviewers are only really accountable for their professional or for their recommendations insofar as it affects their professional reputations. And, you know, often they're just anonymous, except to a journal editor or maybe a grant program manager. So that doesn't really lead to strong incentives to try and just really pin down the likely scientific contribution of a proposal or article. And so to the extent that it's possible to make better judgments by exerting more effort, we might expect better decision-making from people who have more of their professional reputation on the line, such as editors and grant makers, or who are otherwise incentivized to try to really get this right. Third, the very process of peer review could lead to risk aversion along a couple different uh, pathways that I discuss in another article linked. I keep referring to these other articles linked, but like most of them are the same article. Anyway, individual judgment relying on a different process might be able to avoid some of these pitfalls of peer review, at least if taking risks is aligned with professional incentives. Alternatively, it could be that a tolerance for risk is just this rare trait in individuals. And so, you know, most peer reviewers are just risk averse because most people are risk averse. If that's the case, a grant maker or a journal that wants to encourage risk could do so by seeking out, you know, the rare risk-loving individuals and putting them in decision-making roles. Lastly, another feature of peer review is that most proposals or papers are evaluated independently of each other. But it may make sense for a grant maker or a journal to adopt a broader portfolio-based strategy for selecting science, sometimes elevating projects with lower scores if they fit into some broader strategy. For example, maybe a grant maker would want to support in parallel a variety of distinct approaches to a problem to maximize the chances that at least one of them will succeed. 
Or maybe they will want to fund mutually synergistic scientific projects, even if individually some of them are not as strong on peer review as others. So turning to some papers now, we've got a bit of evidence that empowered individual decision makers can indeed offer some of these advantages, although usually in consultation with peer review. So to start, Wagner and Alexander 2013 is an evaluation of the NSF's Small Grants for Exploratory Research Program. This program, which ran from 1990 to 2006, allowed the NSF program managers to bypass peer review and award small, short-term grants of up to $200,000 over two years. This was superseded later by other programs that do similar things. Proposals under the SGER program were short, just a few pages. They are made in consultation with the program manager, but not other external review, and they got processed fast. The idea was to provide a way for program managers to fund a risky and speculative research project that might not have made it through normal peer review. Over its 16 years, the SGER, or as its so-called SUGAR program, dispersed $284 million via about 5,000 awards. Wagner and Alexander argue that the SUGAR program was a big success. By the time of their study, about two-thirds of the SUGAR recipients had used their results to apply for larger grant funding from the conventional NSF programs, and of those that applied, about 80% were successful in their application, at least among those who had received a decision by the time they did the study. They also specifically identify a number of spectacular successes where Sugar provided seed funding for highly transformative research, and that's judged from a survey of SGER awardees, program managers, and they also sort of did a citation analysis to double check. Indeed, Wagner and Alexander's main critique of the program is that it wasn't used enough. Up to 5% of agency funds were allowed to be allocated to the program. But a 2001 study, which is you know, different than theirs in 2013, found that only about 0.6% of the budget actually was allocated to this program. Wagner and Alexander also argue that by their estimates, by their criteria, around 10% of funded projects were associated with transformational research. Whereas a 2007 report by the NSF suggests research should be transformational about 3% of the time. That suggests maybe program managers were not taking enough risks with this program. Moreover, in a survey of awardees, 25% of those who won one of these grants said an extremely important reason for pursuing an SGER grant was that their proposed research idea would be seen as either too high risk, too novel, too controversial, or too opposed to the status quo for a peer review panel. 25% is a large fraction of people who won the awards, but it's not a majority. Although, to be fair, that's people who rate these reasons as extremely important. We don't know how many rate it as just important or something else. Again, maybe the high-risk program, though, is not taking enough risks. In general, though, the SGER's program's experience at least seems consistent with the idea that individual decision-makers can do a decent job supporting less conventional research. Goldstein and Kearney, 2018, is another look at how well discretion compares to peer review, this time in the context of the Advanced Research Projects Agency Energy, or ARPA-E. ARPA-E does not function like a traditional scientific grant maker, where you know, most of the money is handed out to scientists to independently propose projects just sort of for very broadly defined research propose, uh, priorities or research areas. Instead, ARPA-E is composed of program managers who are goal-oriented. They're seeking to fund research projects in the service of overcoming specific technological challenges. 
Proposals are solicited and they get scored by peer reviewers along several criteria on a five-point scale. But program managers are really autonomous and don't just defer to what the peer reviewers say. Instead, they decide what to fund in terms of how the proposals fit into their overall vision. Indeed, in interviews conducted by Goldstein and Kearney, program managers report that they explicitly think of their funded proposals as constituting a portfolio, and they will often fund diverse projects to better ensure at least one approach succeeds, rather than just picking the highest scoring proposals. Goldstein and Kearney have data on 1,216 proposals that were made up through the end of 2015, and they want to see what kinds of projects program managers select and in particular, how they use their peer review feedback. Overall, they find proposals with higher average peer review scores are more likely to get funded, but the effects are pretty weak, explaining about 13% of the variation in what gets funded. In the newsletter, there's a figure that you can't see about the average peer review scores for 74 different proposals uh, to the Batteries for Electrical Energy Storage in Transportation program. So this is you know, electric batteries for, I guess, electric cars. And in this diagram showing the average scores, you've got like indicators for which ones got funded. And it's just clear visually that a lot of prop, uh, a lot of proposals with scores that were well outside the top got funded. So what do ARPA-E managers look at besides the average peer review score? Goldstein and Kearney argue that they're very open to proposals with highly divergent scores, so long as at least one of the peer review reports is very good. We have another figure um, also showing proposals to the battery program, but instead of ordering them and displaying them by their average peer review score, now we're going to look at them by their maximum peer review score. And when you do that, and again we have little indicators for which proposals were scored, Now we're seeing more proposals get funded that are clustered around the highest score. So it's not that common to find proposals that get score if even the maximum score is not very high. And this is true beyond just this battery program, which is just a nice example because you can make a nice figure out of it. Across all 1,216 project proposals, for a given average score, the probability that you were funded by ARPA-E is higher if the proposal receives a wider range of peer review scores. And Goldstein and Kearney also find proposals are more likely to be funded if they're described as being creative by peer reviewers, even after, even after you take into account the average peer review score. Now, ARPA-E was first funded in 2009, and this study took place in 2018, using proposals made up through the year 2015. So there hasn't been a ton of time to assess how well the program has worked. But Goldstein and Kearney do an initial analysis to see how well projects turn out when program managers use their discretion to override peer review. To do this, they divide the 165 different funded proposals into two groups, those with average peer review scores high enough to ensure that they would have been funded if the program managers just completely deferred to peer review, and those that were funded in spite of peer review scores below this threshold. They find, in general, no evidence that the proposals where program managers overrode peer review are any less likely to result in a journal publication, a patent, or market engagement, which is a thing that is tracked by ARPA-E. And I think that's notable because As I've alluded to uh, in earlier work that I've summarized, higher peer review scores 
are usually correlated with things like more publications or more patents, although it's a noisy indicator and that sometimes doesn't show up uh, when you only have you know, less than 200 uh, pieces of data. Now, we also have some studies on how journal editors mix peer review with their own discretion when deciding which papers to publish. Card and Delavigna, 2020, have data on nearly 30,000 submissions to four top economics journals, as well as the recommendations of the peer review reports. Because in economics it's quite common for draft versions of papers to be posted in advance of publication, Card and Delavigna can see what happens to papers that are accepted or rejected from these journals, including how many citations they go on to receive. They could get citations even as just a draft paper, it's pretty common in economics, or they might get published somewhere else, and then we can see the citations that went to the published version or the draft version. Now one thing we can do with this data is see if empowered decision makers, in this case the editors of the journals, can improve on peer review. And one way we can test that is to compare the fates of submissions that get similar peer review scores, but where one of the papers was rejected by the editor and the other allowed to proceed through the revise and resubmit process. We can then see how the citations ultimately received by these submissions varies. If peer review can't be improved on, then we shouldn't expect there to be much of a difference in citations between the articles the editor rejects and the ones they allow to proceed. But if the editor has some ability to spot high-impact research above and beyond what's in the peer review reports, then we should expect the submissions receiving a revise and resubmit to outperform the papers that were just out and out rejected. And there's a figure below that you can't see, so it's not really below, um, on the horizontal axis of this figure. We have the estimated probability that some submission to one of these journals with a given set of peer review scores, plus some other information on like the number of authors and the publication track record of the author, What's the probability that it receives a revise and resubmit decision? And on the vertical axis of this chart, we've got a measure of how many citations that submission eventually receives. All the lines slope up. So papers and submissions with higher peer review scores tend to get more citations. But what's interesting for us today is the gap between two of the lines. On the one of these lines, we've got all of the citations received by papers that the editor sent out for a revise and resubmit. And on the other line, the citations received by papers the editor didn't send out. And there's a pretty big gap between those two lines. What that means is that among submissions with very similar peer review scores, those the editor thought merited a revise and resubmit tended to receive a lot more citations than those that did not. So at least for these journals, which try to identify high-impact economics research, the editor seems to have missed, or seems to have the ability to spot something that peer reviewers missed. Now you may be thinking, this is just picking up, you know, this is a completely fallacious interpretation. Maybe what's going on here is if an editor sends a paper out for a revise and resubmit, it's a lot more likely that that paper is going to be published in one of these top four economics journals. And that's the reason it gets more citations, because it's in a prestigious journal. So the paper is really aware of this and spends a lot of its energy trying to model this effect. And the idea that they exploit is that you get randomly assigned to different editors, and different editors have different levels of stringency. 
And so if you get assigned to a lenient editor, you're more likely to get your work published. And if you are a similar publication and you're assigned to a strict editor, you're less likely to get your work published. And they can they try to use that to infer what's the value just of getting published uh, in one of these journals for otherwise equivalent papers in terms of what they what the peer reviewers think. And they find the extra citations that you can be attributed purely to just being published in one of these top journals are pretty small. Uh, no more than half the effect that we kind of implied by this figure. Moreover, there's another study which, um, or there's another component of the study which compares desk rejected to things that were rejected after peer review was sent out. And in that case too, we see the editor's decision-making was right. Like the stuff they desk rejected tends to get less citations than stuff they eventually reject. Although in this case, we can't compare it to peer review. But still, that's at least comparing rejected to rejected and showing that editor taste is sort of somewhat informative. Lastly, another paper that lets us compare peer review and editor decision-making is Teplitsky et al. 2022, which has data on thousands of submissions to Cell, Cell Reports, and the journals of the Institute of Physics Publishing. And they've got uh, information on sub submissions between 2013 and 2018. Teplitsky and co-authors are more interested in how novelty is judged by journals rather than the number of citations that ultimately get received by papers. So to do this, they've got to measure novelty. And to measure novelty, they use a common measure based on the citations an article makes. For every pair of journals cited by the submission, they create a measure of how atypical it is for these journals to be cited together based on the frequency that they've been cited together in the past relative to what you would expect just due to random chance. They then order these journal pairings from the least to most typical and use the atypical score at the 10th percentile as their measure of how novel a paper is. Basically, this measure zooms in on sort of the most surprising combinations of journals cited and uses those as a proxy for how novel the overall article is. You know, a submission whose most unusual combination of cited references is cell and cell reports it's probably not very novel probably pretty common for papers to cite both of those reports or both of those journals but a submission that cites both cell and the journal of economic history that's not a combination you typically see and they take that as a sign that this is a more novel paper so in one analysis Toplitsky and co-authors break the publication pipeline into three steps the decision to send out for review rather than just desk rejected, the peer review decision or the peer review recommendation, they don't get to decide. And the peer reviewers can recommend, you know, we reject this or you get revisions or you accept it. And then the final stage is the ultimate decision whether to publish the paper after you've got peer review. At each of these stages, Toplitsky and co-authors look to see how novelty of the submission affects its progression through the publication pipeline, where submissions uh, you know, are ranged from least to most novel. So at the desk review section, where the editor is making a decision about whether to send this out for peer review at all, they find across all the journals, the most novel submissions, that is those that are citing the most unusual set of references, are more likely to be sent out for peer review. At the peer review stage, we have the recommendation of the peer reviewers to reject or issue a revise and resubmit, or maybe rarely just accept the paper. And now we have a, a, a more variable sort of result. In Cell, 
peer reviewers are basically indifferent to novelty. They don't care. Like the probability that you get uh, revise and resubmit is the same whether you have a really novel paper or a less novel paper. However, at the Institute of Physics journals, uh, peer reviewers they seem to also they seem to prefer more novel papers. They're more likely to rep- uh, recommend that stuff gets a revise and resubmit or an acceptance compared to less novel papers. There was also, I said, cell reports. They don't have data on the peer review reports of that. Finally, we've got the editor's decision to accept or reject publication. And now we're going to see how novelty matters holding fixed the peer review recommendations. And once again, we find results are kind of variable. At Cell, among submissions with similar peer review recommendations, journal editors are much more likely to accept a paper if the paper is more novel. But at the Institute of Physics, the editors don't seem to really care at this stage. You know, While the peer reviewers like novel papers, the editors basically look at the peer review scores and if it's more novel or less novel, that doesn't make any additional difference. All in all, Cell seems to demonstrate how an editor with a taste for novelty can boost the prospects of novel research relative to, in this case, peer reviewers who are indifferent to novelty. But I'd say at best, this is sort of an existence proof. We don't really see the same dynamics in the other set of journals studied, so we can't say that this is like a general thing. So to sum up, at the NSF, a program that allows managers to use their discretion to bypass peer review and fund riskier research seems to have worked pretty well, though it was perhaps underused. And we don't have like a nice experimental design where we can compare it to other papers or other programs. At ARPA-E, we can see that program managers regularly pass on proposals with high average peer review, perhaps in favor of proposals that are creative or have at least one enthusiast and which perhaps better satisfy the needs of their own research portfolio. And at present, we don't really see that these RPE program managers face any penalty for taking this discretionary approach. Meanwhile, on the journal side, we've got some evidence in economics that editors have some skill at selecting higher impact research from papers with similar peer review scores. And in one major biology journal, that editors seem to use their discretion to select more novel research relative to the peer review people, though we don't see this in another set of journals. So the main thing that I take away from all this is that the individuals who we empower to make the ultimate decisions about the allocation of scientific resources could matter a lot. But at the same time, I don't think we know much about them compared to, for example, what we know about the individuals who allocate resources in the rest of the economy, that is the bankers, the traders, the venture capitalists, and so on. Questions we could ask are like, what are the incentives faced by our allocators of scientific resources? How are these guys selected? What kinds of feedback do they get on their performance? Would feedback matter? Does it matter? Do successful allocators share certain traits, whether those are in terms of their professional background or they're just their personality? How good are these guys at forecasting outside of science? And so on. It just seems like there's a lot that we could still learn and it could matter. Thanks. And now it's time for the standard end of the episode boilerplate. You've been listening to a podcast from New Things Under the Sun, a living literature review with the mission of communicating what academia knows about innovation and accessible but rigorous research syntheses. New Things Under the Sun is a living literature review, which means I go back and update these research syntheses as new research is published or I discover it. The podcast you listen to 
is taken from the first published version of one of these syntheses. To see if there's been any updates about the claims made in this podcast, or to learn more about this project, head to newthingsunderthesun.com.